0: Well, good morning, Calvary family. Hope uh, all of you are warm, or getting warm at least, for those of you who are still without power. And um, praying that uh, a lot of that will be restored for us. Uh, Power is only out uh, for a few hours, but it was uh, even so a reminder of what our dear friends uh, in Ukraine are going through all the time. Uh, at least uh, here, once they fix the transformers, no one shoots a cruise missile at it again uh, to blow it up. So is a reminder to us to uh, be praying for uh, all the suffering people in the cities of, uh, of Ukraine who are under constant bombardment of their infrastructure and um, even of civilian targets. So uh, praying for them as kind of the one-year anniversary of that great tragedy uh, unfolds. Well, I want to in- invite you to turn uh, in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 6. And uh, the last part of the service today is going to be a staffing presentation, uh, and we want to make sure we have plenty of time for that, and so today's message is just going to be an introduction to the first few verses of this key chapter. So I want to kind of set the context for you by uh, directing you to how chapter 5 ends. If you remember from last week, chapter 5 ends on truly a dark note. Chapter 5, verse 30 says, If one looks to the land, behold, there is darkness and distress. Even the light is darkened by its clouds. And perhaps some of you had more of an experience with darkness uh, this week than you were anticipating. Uh, But this is describing a judgment of spiritual darkness darkness and distress, and even the light is darkened by its clouds. So chapter 5 ends on a truly dark note, and this happened because in ancient Israel, as we've talked about the last few weeks, individualistic materialism, greed, had produced isolation. Immersive merriment had produced ignorance, inverted moralism, had produced iniquity. And so iniquity would soon produce invasion. And if you remember from last time, we ended with the question Is there any hope? Chapter 5 ends with saying, If one looks to the land, there's darkness and distress. Even the light is darkened by the clouds. So, is there any hope? Or. Does everything end with that sobering phrase at the end of chapter five, verse 25, where it says, for all of this, even after all of these judgments, God's anger is still not spent, but his hand is still stretched out in judgment. Is there any hope? And because the New Testament says these things were written for our instruction, the question we can ask is, is there any hope for us today? Is there hope for ancient Israel? Is there hope for us? And we need to ask the question of whether there's hope for us because just like ancient Israel, we have pl- plunged headlong into individualistic materialism, into immersive merriment and into inverted moralism. I was commenting in the f- first service about the fact that immersive merriment is an incredibly dishonoring thing to God. People will spend so much time on the most trivial of things and they have no time for God. The greatest insult to someone is to tell them that they're irrelevant and not even worth your time. They are worth less than the most trivial of things. People will spend hundreds of hours on trivialities and have no time for God. And by doing so, they place him lower than those trivialities. They make him truly worthless. Immersive merriment is not only a distraction from God, but a dishonoring of God. And of course, that attitude towards God then leads to inverted moralism, which we've been talking about. So the question is, how... Do we turn the ship around? Is there any hope, and if so, how do we change things? How can we escape from the soul-destroying vortex of inverted moralism? How do we get back on the right path? How do we turn everything that's upside down right side up? What needs to happen first? What's the first step in turning the upside down world of inverted moralism right side up? What is the greatest need for our society, for our churches, and even for our own hearts. My suggestion to you is that chapter 6 is going to begin Isaiah's answer to that question. Scholars have often debated why Isaiah's prophetic call is placed at chapter 6 and not at the very beginning. Well, it's for this reason. The first five chapters lay out the problem and then the solution begins to be unveiled with what God shows Isaiah when he sees the Lord seated on the throne. So, chapter six is going to give us the first step in solving the problem of inverted moralism. And the entire book is going to have answers to that question for us, but this is where it begins. And where we need to start in our efforts to respond to the challenge of inverted moralism, the first step in turning that which is upside down, back right side up, is this. And please listen carefully. We need to recover our awe of God. We need to recover our awe of God. Particularly, we need to recover our awe of the majesty of God and of the holiness of God. Those are the two things about God which are emphasized in Isaiah chapter six, his majesty and his holiness. We need to recover our awe of God. We need to recover our awe of his majesty and holiness and then, like Isaiah, we need to respond to God's call to take that message to others. We desperately need to understand that God is holy and we are not. He is exalted and we are lowly. We are wicked and depraved, but he is holy, holy, holy. We need to understand that, and then we need to proclaim it. You see, inverted moralism, the upside-down morals of our world, results from a low view of God and an elevated view of man. When the creature tries to put himself in the creator's place as the moral lawgiver, as the one who determines what is right and wrong, or as Satan told Adam and Eve, you can be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, deciding what's good and what is evil for yourself. When the creature tries to sit in the seat of the creator, everything gets turned upside down. Morals are inverted. That which is evil is called good. That which is good is called evil. Darkness is chosen over light. Inverted moralism results from a low view of God and an elevated view of man. So to turn it around, to turn it back right side up, we need to recover a God-centered worldview where the majesty, the glory, and the holiness of God is valued above the thoughts, the feelings, and the opinions of men. We are living in a man-centered world. People like, you know, in times of old, people thought the whole universe revolved around the earth. Now modern people think the whole universe revolves around them personally. They think they are the center of their own universe and they are not. I grew up in Denver, Colorado. And uh, when you live in Denver, it's really easy to get your bearings. If you ever need to know which way is north, south, east, or west, all you have to do from anywhere in the Denver metro area is just look up. And there you will see in the distance the majestic fixed landmarks of the Rocky Mountains. And if you're anywhere in the Denver metro area, you see the mountains, you know that's west. And from there, you know which way is east and north and south. And because... Denver has over 300 days of sunshine each year. On almost any day, you can simply look and see where the sun is. And if the sun is, if you're looking in the morning and you see the sun, you know that way is east. If you see the sun in the evening, you know that way is west. You can see the sun and you can see fixed landmarks, and that's how you get your bearings. Well, here it's not so easy, is it? At least for some of the year. There's no mountains. So oftentimes you're in a place where there are no visible fixed landmarks and for a long period of time in January and February, there can be no sun at all, just gray all around. You look around, you can't see any fixed landmarks. You look up and you can't see anything but gray. And I'm not trying to diss our beautiful state. For 10 months of the year, it's absolutely gorgeous and for the other two months, we pay the price. But the overcast skies that we have from January to February are a good illustration of what can happen when inverted moralism descends on a society. Inverted moralism descends like the January, February overcast, or like fog in certain places where it just descends and disorients everybody. No one can see any landmarks to get their bearings. You look up, all you see is gray all around. You can't see the sun, you can't see landmarks, and so it is easy, listen, to get disoriented. To think north is south, south is north. And to finish the analogy I'm making, it's easy to think good is evil, and evil is good. We live in a culture which calls evil good, which calls disorientation orientation, and which calls darkness light. Millions of our dear and precious neighbors are lost. No moral landmarks. No sun. All around foggy and gray. They are, as Jesus said, like sheep without a shepherd. They are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd and what is the response that we are to have to these lost souls? We are to have compassion upon them. As Jesus said, he said he looked out at the people and he saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep with no shepherd just wandering to and fro and being ripped apart by by vicious wolves and he had compassion on them. We need to have compassion on the lost to help them find their way, to find the way and the truth and the life. We need to point them to the good shepherd so that he can lead them in paths of righteousness for his namesake, so that he can lead them to the still waters, so that they can lie down in green pastures. We need to pray for them that God will part the clouds which the enemy of their souls has descended upon them so that they can see the sun. And I'm using that overused English plan words with S-O-N. We need to point out to them the immovable moral landmarks which God has given to guide us to true love, to true joy, to true peace, to true fulfillment. They are being lied to and robbed We need to point them to the truth. We need to lead them out of the darkness of inverted moralism and into the bright, joyful, life-giving sunshine of God's word and God's ways. You know, when God gave his commandments, he said, the reason I'm giving these commandments to you is for your good, that it may go well with you. I don't... Want your suffering. I don't want your destruction. So I'm giving you this, these moral guidelines so that you can lie down in green pastures, so that you can be beside the still waters so that you can receive blessing. In Denver, all you had to do To properly orient yourself was to look up at the glory of creation. And spiritually, all you have to do to properly orient yourself is look up at the glory of the creator. You will look to him and find true north. Find the right way to go. He is the son. His word gives us those immovable moral landmarks which we need to properly orient ourselves to get our bearings good shepherd has good things for us and he has said here's the way walk in it we need to help people do that well what is then the first step in turning the upside down world of inverted moralism right side up it is this it is to recover our awe of god's majesty and his holiness to do that we need to look up we need to look up we need to see the lord and to remember that he is high and exalted, that he is holy, holy and holy. We're going to do exactly that through the eyes and the inspired pen of the prophet Isaiah as we read chapter 6. Isaiah 6, beginning in verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the king, Yahweh of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, Until cities are devastated and without inhabitant, houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet, there will be a tenth portion in it and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Stump. As we begin our study of this glorious chapter, I want you to notice that it begins and ends with two contrasts which give great hope. It begins and it ends with two contrasts, and those contrasts give us great hope. In verse one, the human king dies, but the divine king is still on his throne. In verse 13, Israel is cut down to a stump, but the hope of the remnant is that the holy seed of the messianic promise still remains. And chapter 11 is gonna say that a branch is gonna spring forth from that stump. That messianic hope is gonna spring forth and the scriptures teach that the whole world is gonna find its shade in the branches of Messiah, this root of Jesse, this root Branch which springs forth from the remnant. Two contrasts, and they give great hope. The human king dies, but the divine king is still on his throne. Israel is cut down to a stump, but the holy seed remains. Contrast here is saying that though the human kings had failed, God will not fail. And though most of Israel will be destroyed, a remnant will remain. The messianic hope will yet sprout forth like a new shoot springs forth from the living stump of a felled oak tree. In this storm, a lot of trees were knocked down. Some of those oak trees will have a living shoot which springs forth from the stump of what remains and the life of the roots from underneath. So this chapter begins and ends with a contrast between the gloom caused by human failure and the hope brought by God's faithfulness. So let's look a little more closely at that opening contrast there in verse one. The contrast between the fall of the human king and the reign of the heavenly king. Chapter six, verse one. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Verse one begins with the death of King Uzziah, and King Uzziah was someone whom Arnold Fruchtenbaum summarizes as a king who started out strong but ended badly. A lot of people are that way. They start out strong but end badly. Badly, That's how Uzziah was. He did a lot of good things, but then he grew proud and tried to take the role of a priest by offering incense on the altar. That was forbidden by the law of God. And it was forbidden because only the Messiah can be prophet, priest, and king, and so God struck Uzziah with leprosy when he did that, and he ended his life in humiliation and isolation, even needing a regent to reign in his place for the latter portion of his life. And the downfall of the king in many ways mirrored the downfall of the nation. Iniquity amongst the people like leprosy on the body of the king had brought them into isolation, ignorance, and iniquity. And then the king dies. With the king dead and the nation in rebellion against God, things seemed bleak, almost Hopeless, And so Isaiah goes to the temple and there he sees into the heavenly temple. And then comes these glorious words. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord. And I saw him sitting on his throne. The human king had fallen, but the divine king was still seated on his throne there's a huge lesson for us in this contrast this is a powerful contrast the king is dead the true king lives the human king has fallen the heavenly king will never fall the lesson is this no matter how bad or dark things get down here it doesn't change what's true up there No matter how bad or dark things get, don't forget that God is still on his throne. And nothing which happens down here can change that reality up there. The one who is seated on the throne was, is, and is to come. He rules and reigns forever. His kingdom has no end. No one can unseat him from his throne. There will never be a coup in heaven. The king reigns, and he is sovereign. King Uzziah is dead, but the Lord is still seated on his throne. And that is where hope is found. Not in man, but in God. Isaiah goes on to say that the one who is seated on the throne is lofty and exalted. This is key for stemming the tide of inverted moralism. This is the truth that we desperately need to understand to preach in our churches, to teach our children, and to proclaim to the lost. We have to recover our awe of the majesty of God that he is high and exalted. This low view of God that has infected our thinking has come from the pulpits. It is the preachers and the pastors who have taught God's people a low view of God because it's more pleasant to hear, because it doesn't leave you reacting like Isaiah did when he said, woe is me, I am ruined, I'm undone, I'm coming to an end. Because I am a man of unclean lips. I live among the people of unclean lips. No one wants to hear a preacher preaching that. And so they don't. Instead, they teach a domesticated view of God. In recent decades, many churches have adopted this very strange idea that preaching and teaching on the majesty of God will make God seem distant, make him seem uninterested, make him seem irrelevant, and so the way that we can help people to understand the nearness and the closeness of God is by domesticating him. Sadly, too many modern preachers have tried to domesticate the Lion of Judah and to turn him into a cuddly little house kitten who purrs with affirmations and approval. Someone you can kind of keep in a compartment of your life, and whenever you're feeling a little down, you can go and just hear this cute little affirming purr from your domesticated God. C.S. Lewis recognized this tendency even back many decades ago and he wrote about it often in the Chronicles of Narnia. He famously put it this way. The Lion of Judah is not a tame lion, but he is good. He is not tame, but he is good. In another section, he puts it a different way. He says... He is not safe, but he is good. Why would C.S. Lewis put it this way? He is not a tame lion. What is a tame lion? Well, to be tamed is to be subjugated to the will of another and to be trained to perform for their entertainment. That is the view of God which modern preachers have been propagating. That God can be tamed to your will. That you can command and he will obey. That you can put on a show and God will perform. God is not a tamed lion. It may feel warm and fuzzy to conceive of God in that way, but this false view of God is of no help when real trouble comes. If you conceive of God as a cuddly little house kitten who always purrs with affirmations and approvals of you rather than someone who is lofty and exalted before whom you fall in worship, that domesticated low view of God will be of no help to you when true true trouble comes. When real trouble comes, the affirming purring of the house kitten version of God which so many people have contrived in their own minds leaves them defenseless and helpless against the attacks of the enemy. The enemy comes with power in his attacks. And all people have is the affirming purring of a domesticated false view of God, which they've contrived in their own minds. What they need is the roar of the lion. Of Judah. The need of the hour is not the affirming purring of the domesticated God promoted by so many Christian publishers, musicians, and speakers. What is needed is the roar of the Lion of Judah, the one who is lofty and exalted, who is seated on his throne, before whom we fall and worship. That phrase, lofty and exalted, In verse 1 appears again in Isaiah 52, verse 13. And interestingly, there it refers specifically to the Messiah. So in Isaiah chapter 6, it is clear that the one who is lofty and exalted is Adonai, verse 1, and then Yahweh in verse 3. So clearly referring to God in chapter six. In chapter 52, verse 13, these exact same terms are used of the Messiah. Flip over to chapter 52, verse 13. And notice that these are the introductory verses to Isaiah 53, that great chapter about the suffering of the servant who gives his life to save sinners. This is referring to Christ's And notice what is said about him in Isaiah 52, verse 13. Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. Paul refers to this in Philippians when he says, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. He's been given the name above every name. He is high and exalted, so Chapter 6, Adonai, Yahweh is the high and exalted one. Chapter 52, the Messiah is the high and exalted one. And then chapter 57, verse 15, again, it is God who is high and exalted. Chapter 57, verse 15, for thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place but also with the contrite and lowly of spirits in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. The conclusion is inescapable. If chapter six, verse one says that the Lord is the lofty and exalted one, then chapter 52, verse 13 says the Messiah is the high and exalted one, and then chapter 57, verse 15 says that God is the high and exalted one, then it is clear that the Messiah is no mere man. He is fully God and fully man. Isaiah states this explicitly. The son who will be given to us, the one born of a virgin, will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Unless there be any doubt about the identity of this coming Messiah, he says in chapter 9, verse 6, that this coming son will be mighty God. Tell that to your Jehovah's Witness visitors the next time they knock. The Messiah is no mere man. He is the high and exalted one, the one whom Isaiah saw seated on the throne. Jesus said, I and the Father are one. While we're in Isaiah 57, verse 15, let me point out one other thing. Let me read the verse again. Thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell on a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Do you see the connection? What's comforting is that the high and exalted one also dwells with those who are lowly and contrite of spirit. See, it's not a domesticated God. It's not the nearness of the house kitten that gives comfort. That's not what you need in a fallen world with powerful dark forces of principalities and powers who wage war against us in the spiritual realm. What's comforting is the nearness of a majestic and mighty God. The one who says, I am the high and exalted one, I live forever, my name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place, but also with the contrite, the lowly of spirit, the needy one who comes empty, He says, I dwell with them in order to revive the spirit of the lonely, to revive the heart of the contrite. I come to breathe new life into that heart, to breathe new hope into that soul. I, the high and exalted one, come to save Beloved, you do not have to minimize God's majesty in order to affirm his nearness. It's actually his majesty which makes his nearness so precious. So don't minimize God's majesty in order to affirm his nearness and don't minimize God's nearness in order to affirm his majesty. Both are absolutely true and we must teach, believe, and cherish both equally and fully. We don't want to teach people a declawed, domesticated conception of the Lion of Judah. But we don't want to teach them a distant, deistic conception of God either. Both of those are distortions of who he really is. So we must teach people the whole counsel of God so that they can know him as he really is, so that they can know the one who is high and exalted, who lives forever, whose name is holy, who dwells on a high and holy place, and also with the contrite and the lowly of spirit, who revives their spirit, who revives their hearts. This is our God and this is our hope. Turn back to chapter six and notice The rest of the description of what Isaiah saw in the throne room of God. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet, and with two, he flew. And one called out to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Here's what I want you to notice. Isaiah described what was possible to describe. He describes the robe, he describes the angels, he describes the throne, he describes the sounds, but he does not even attempt to describe the Lord himself because what he saw was truly indescribable. In fact, every time that the scripture records that someone saw the Lord, they only see a portion of his glory. Moses only sees a glimpse of the Lord's glory passing by. Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on his throne, but the temple is obscured by the smoke of the incense from the altar. Every time that scripture records that someone saw the Lord, they see only a portion of his divine glory. In fact, there are several verses that say that no one can see the fullness of God's splendor and live. That's why even the seraphim must shield their faces with their wings. If they must, how much more would mortal men The seraphim shield their faces with their wings, smoke from the altar of incense, fills the heavenly temple, and partially obscures anyone from seeing fully the glory of God. Why? Because his full splendor, his full majesty, his full glory would be so overwhelming to created beings that they would die if they saw it fully unveiled that's what they all say every time in scripture where someone sees the Lord they fall down on their face and say like Isaiah woe to me I'm undone that's a word that talks about being uncreated it's overwhelming to a mortal being John in Revelation chapter 1 verse 17 when he sees Christ in his glory falls down on his face he says like a dead man until the Lord lifts him up Why is this? Well, it's basic metaphysics. The infinite one cannot be fully seen by those who are finite. The finite cannot fully see or comprehend with mortal senses the fullness of the infinite one. However, God, on rare occasions, in his grace and mercy has given people a partial glimpse of his Shekinah glory. Moses, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and John all saw the glory of the Lord. And when they saw even this partial glimpse, they all feared they would die, be undone, come to an end. Because even the partial glimpse was so overwhelming, they knew mortal flesh could not take it. The full manifestation of God's infinite glory would simply overwhelm the finite capacity of human senses. What is the point I'm making here? Listen, folks, God is not a domesticated house kitten. He is the Lion of Judah. And the New Testament says that he dwells in inapproachable light. I want to take you to 1 Timothy chapter 6. Listen to how the New Testament describes this and listen to the connection it makes to our daily living. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verses 12 through 16. 1 Timothy 6.12 says, fight the good fight of faith. This is imminently practical. How do you fight the good fight of faith? He says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, and you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who testified the good confession before Pontius Pilate, that you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He, who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion, amen. You want to go into spiritual battle, you better know this God. The one who alone possesses immortality. The one who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see. You better give glory and honor and eternal dominion to him and then go out in the dark world Armed with his message. Now, Paul says, No man has seen or can see, and yet then we look at Isaiah 6.1, it says, In the year of King Uzziah's death I saw the Lord. Well, how do we understand this? Moses, Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and others all saw the Lord truly, but no one can see him fully. They saw him truly but no one can see him fully. Finite beings cannot fully perceive the infinite. That's almost by definition, isn't it? They saw him truly, but no one can see him fully. Until. And this is where it gets, oh, so glorious. John says in First John 3 that there will come a day in which we will see him face to face. How can that be? Well, the New Testament says there will come a day in which the perishable will put on the imperishable. The mortal will put on immortality. We who are united with Christ will be glorified with Christ and then we will see him face to face. 1 Corinthians 2: nine says, "I has not seen, no eye has seen. No ear is, has heard, and it's never even entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for those who love him. But someday, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you will see Him face to face. the lofty and exalted one. That's something to live for, that's something to die for. Well, in the meantime, How can we know a God? You may just understand. How can we know an infinite being? How can I have a relationship with this one who's on a throne in a high and holy place when I, like Isaiah, am an unclean person who lives among unclean people? How can we even dare to approach such a God? The answer is simple. John chapter 1, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Verse 18, no one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him this is the glory of the incarnation that the son of god came and he was incarnate he took on flesh to dwell among us to show us the father that's exactly what he says in chapter 14 remember when he says i'm going to prepare a place for you and he tells them i'm the way the truth and the life no one can come to the father but through me and, and Philip said lord show us the father and it's enough for us And Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you've not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. He says in verse 10, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. in another place he says, I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father, the only begotten God, the one who came incarnate, that Jesus the Messiah has explained him made him known and knowable. That's how you can know this high and exalted one. Do you know him? Have you repented of sin and placed your faith in Christ the Messiah? Lord, these are things too wonderful for us. Lord, forgive uh, this Very insufficient attempt to describe to my brothers and sisters even a dim reflection of your true glory. Lord, help us to recover our awe and then to take a message to a world which not only has no awe but simply ignores you or despises you. Lord, help us to take to them the good news of one who is seated on a throne, who is high and exalted, but who also dwells with the lowly and contrite of spirit. Give us, Lord, a lowly and contrite spirit. And we thank you for sending Christ your son so that we may know you. Thank you for the eternal life we have in him. And thank you, Lord, for the glorious promise that when the perishable is swallowed up by the imperishable and the mortal by the immortal we will see you face to face and we will be like you for we will see you as you are Lord to be co-heirs with Christ to be glorified with him on the basis of grace alone and to dwell with you forever Lord these are such marvelous things Our, our minds and our words fall short We truly fall short of your glory. So we are grateful for grace. And we thank you in Jesus' name, amen.